Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to a new criminal case. We have always heard about witches, whether in books, films, fairy tales or cartoons and in the popular imagination. It is always that nasty old woman with a big wart on her nose, a black cat, a cauldron and a broom. However, the story we are going to tell you today is about witches of an entirely different kind. In 1692, in the fledgling state of Massachusetts, Abigail Williams and her cousin Betty Paris, two young girls from the rigorous Puritan community of Salem, began to show disturbing signs of demonic possession. Soon, other girls joined them, claiming to have the same symptoms. For their superstitious community, there is only one explanation. They have been bewitched. Someone has put a spell on them. But who and why? This was the beginning of one of the longest and most notorious and most resounding witchcraft trails in American history, in which no less than a hundred people were arrested and accused of trading with the devil, while 40 others were sentenced to the gallows. But then, how did this whole mysterious affair begin? In what historical context did it all take place? What if Abigail Williams, Betty Paris, and others made it all up to get revenge? This is what I invite you to discover with me in today's criminal case, which takes us straight back to the atmosphere of the first American colonies, then under the yoke of Puritan obscurantism. Barbados, Caribbean, September 1680. Sitting in his rattan chair, Samuel Paris congratulates himself on getting such a good deal. He paid three times nothing for his purchase this morning, a cheap price because the owner, Susanna Endicott wanted to get rid of her burden as quickly as possible. The purchase in question is a young slave couple, John the Native American and Tituba the Haitian. The couple had previously lived with Susanna Endicott, who had bought them separately. While John entered her service, at a very young age, Tituba joined him only two years earlier, and they ended up falling in love under her roof. Fearing the scandal that would ensue, if a mulatto baby were born, Mrs. Endicott, as a good Christian and fearful of the church, quickly married them off. But since Tituba joined his department, strange things started happening. Like that time a black rooster came into the living room, or the time the sugar bowl somersaulted its own before landing on the floor. More than once, Susanna Endicott has caught the young couple exchanging mischievous and knowing glances at each other when such things happen and more than once she has heard them cackling behind her back. It is clear that they were conspiring to scare and murder her in her sleep in order to get their hands on her property. She especially suspects Tituba of being behind these supernatural phenomena, knowing that all the slaves from Haiti practice voodoo magic, which is used both to heal and to harm. 
Susanna Endicott's constant headaches, stomach pains, and pimples on her back of her neck and under her armpits could only be traced to a puppet made in her likeness by John's formidable wife. No, definitely she couldn't take any more. So the time had come for her to get rid of the man and woman once and for all. On the eve of their sale, she tells them, Gather your things and tomorrow you will go to the slave market. Native American John, usually so silent and proud, then lost all his composure and threw himself at her feet to beg her not to separate him from his wife. Idiot, I'll ask them to take you together. Samuel Paris spotted the couple in Bridgetown's main square. The Indian man with his hair down to his shoulders and the African woman in a garish red toilet probably inherited from some passing prostitute. Because of the hot sun, both husband and wife have their heads covered with poor straw hats, and what little belongings they have are in two bundles at their feet. Around them, male voices are raised to propose the auction. Further away, their former owner sits in a carriage, her head protected by an umbrella, watching the progress of the sale and waiting for a sign from the slave trader once the negotiations are over. Samuel Paris came closer to inspect the couple's face to see if they were suffering from skin infection or any other type of illness. He feels John's muscles, inspects Tituba's teeth, sniffs both their breath before deciding. They look perfectly healthy. The boy can take on the work of two men. The girl looks a bit cheeky, but still quite strong too. It is clear that they can work for the next 40 years without any problems and their future children will take over in due course. John had that closed, scowling Native American look on his face, while Tituba's dark, glittering eyes flashed at Samuel Paris as he had handed the three gold coins to Susanna Endicott. Susanna Endicott, as soon as she had put the money in her purse, disappeared in her carriage without a glance at them. That evening, the couple are already hard at work in their new master's house, Tituba busy in the kitchen and John standing guard in the banana garden with a machete hanging from his belt. Born in London in 1653, Samuel Paris was the second son of a cloth merchant who owned several pieces of land dedicated to tobacco production in the West Indies, then an English colony overseas. He spent his early years in England before joining his father with the rest of his family in Barbados. However, when his father died, Samuel Paris saw most of his inheritance taken by his elder brother, as was customary at the time. He was left with only a small piece of land, barely enough to plant tubers. In December 1680, he put his land up for sale and accompanied John and Tituba set sail for Boston in the United States in the hopes of making the small capital he had left work. One of her young sisters was already living there with her husband. It is not long before Samuel Paris marries Elizabeth Eldridge, a clergyman's daughter from Newcastle. The couple settled in Salem Village in a modest wooden house. It is worth remembering that the first community settled in the northeastern United States, more precisely in Maine and Massachusetts, were Puritan communities that came mainly from England and the Netherlands. The Parises were no exception to the rule, and Samuel planned to become pastor of Salem Village, a title he obtained without much difficulty. Now, let me give you a glimpse into the daily life of these colonies during the second half of the 18th century, so that you can get a better idea of the atmosphere of the story. It all began when the Puritan community, marginalized and ostracized in England, where they were continually prosecuted, decided to set sail for the New World in 1620. 
For these very rigorous religions, the goal is to find a virgin land free of sins, a land where the community could finally live without fear of persecution from the Anglican Church. Puritan dogmas are extremely strict, the way of life very austere. Purity is one of the founding principles of mortality, and the practice of fasting is very common, always in the spirit of purification of body and mind. With this comes the constant fear of displeasing the Creator, of not being good enough. So one has to redouble one's efforts and inflict all sorts of hardships on oneself. Families perform daily tasks according to their age and gender. Men and boys pull the plow in the fields and cultivate barley and maize to provide for their family. While women and girls work hard in the kitchen, weave, sew, fetch water from the river and bring up the children. The Puritans always try to stay on the right path, to live a healthy life as far away from temptation and spending as much possible. They are convinced that by depriving themselves of food, entertainment and other pleasures, they will attain the title of chosen ones. Christmas and Easter are not celebrated. The consumption of alcohol and tobacco is strictly forbidden, and manifestation of joy is frowned upon and replaced by prayer, repentance, and sometimes even self-flagellation and self-mutilation, practices that are strongly encouraged even among children. When prayer and youth are no longer enough to eradicate the scourges of drought, hail, or locusts, they resort to other means, exclusion rituals designed to cleanse the community of possible parasites. In other words, those whose righteousness is judged not to be sufficiently deep and who could harm the equilibrium of all and condemn them to hell. These outcasts are then ruthlessly expelled and forbidden to turn back, even if they die of hunger or cold on the way. The clothing is also a distinctive sign of their membership. Large high hats and black capes for men, white headdresses covering the hair, and loose woolen chasubles for women. Jewelry, extravagant hairstyles, perfumes, bright colors, and expensive fabrics are forbidden. The main thing is to appear modest and to conceal all parts of the anatomy that could incite sin, especially in women who are educated as to the guardians of mortality and the only ones who cannot incite men to stray from the right path. The Puritan communities were constantly on the lookout for traces of the devil, for they saw him in different incarnations. The most reprehensible crime was that of bestiality, that is, consensual sexual relations between an unmarried man and a woman, says historian John Claude Leglanek. Salem was founded in 1626 and Boston in 1630. Other villages were also established. All were built around a church, often surrounded by a kind of fortress to protect the inhabitants from the perpetual local threats attacks by wild animals and invasions by a merry Indian tribes whose violence generated almost daily fear among the villagers. The Wampanoag and Powhatan tribes who witnessed the daily abduction of their land by these newcomers from the old continent had no choice but to resort to scalping for revenge. Several villagers who have gone to fetch water from the river are found disemboweled and their scalps torn off. To stop these massacres, the royal government decided on an amicable solution during which the Wampanoag chief agreed to sign a mutual aid contract with the settlers, a sort of roadmap that stipulated more cordial relations, based essentially on trade and barter, of common goods such as tobacco, bare skin, potatoes, corn, cotton, and weapons. A reclusive, macho codified society surrounded by prohibitions, 
Living in constant fear of possible divine punishment, the people of Salem Village gradually begin to isolate themselves and ghettoize themselves behind the walls of their wooden fortress. This voluntarily isolation is one of the main causes of the tragic events to come, of which Salem Village will be the background. Since moving to this new American home, Samuel Paris had taken on the duties of a village church minister. In the wilderness and harsh climate of New England, he feels closer to God, better able to serve his word, and further away from the temptations of the flesh, as he did when he lived in the West Indies. Many years have passed since he boarded the carol bound for the United States with John and Tituba. Now he is a notable man with a large family. His wife Elizabeth gave birth to three children, Thomas, Elizabeth called Betty, and a third boy called Caleb. A few months ago, a fourth child joined the family, a little girl named Abigail Williams, Samuel's niece whose parents had just died of a measles epidemic. Abigail, aged 10, has been taken in by her uncle in an act of Christian charity, but in the sense that her presence will also be useful to Mrs. Paris. She will have to help her with all the housework, the cooking, and the education of baby Caleb. Otherwise, feeding, clothing, and housing her would be considered a crazy expense. This is also what Puritan's mortality is all about. However, the girl quickly became involved with her eight-year-old cousin Betty, for whom she became a sort of mentor and playmate. Abigail Williams is an alert and often stubborn child, and little Betty tries to copy her every move, as is usual for little girls at that age. When not helping slave Tituba and Mrs. Paris with housework, the two cousins spent most of their time in the attic of the house telling each other scary stories. Sometimes, Reverend Paris takes them with him in his carriage to other villages to sell or trade goods. These outings, though rare, are the only window on the world outside the village of Salem. When the Native American John goes hunting with Tom, the eldest child, the little girls sneak up behind them and follow them into the surrounding woods where hidden behind a tree. They observe the whole ritual of capturing animals for slaughter. When John plunges his knife into the throat of an elk, Abigail and Betty suppress a scream without taking their eyes off the scene. The sight of the animal spurting blood exerts a great morbid fascination on them. During the long winter nights, Tituba tells the girls legends and stories about the voodoo magic she grew up with on the island of Haiti. She tells them fascinating tales of sea turtles, dolls pinned to trees, and prophetesses who can trigger volcanoes to erupt. Every night, these stories, so strange and exotic, kept the little girls on the edge of their seats, frightening and fascinating them at the same time. At the beginning of 1691, Salem Village became a refuge for several survivors from other New England villages, fleeing persecution by Indian tribes who had set fire to their homes. The Puritan community was going through one of the darkest periods in its history when it felt continually hounded and threatened. The survivor tells how young shepherds who went into the woods with their cattle never returned. Their scalps were not brought back to their parents by the Indians until a week later. Some people refer to the mysterious man in black without being able to give him a precise identity. He is a French infantryman, an enemy of the English troops, an Indian from the Narragansett's tribe, who legend tells us are giant who eat human flesh, or some other even more dangerous entity. During the Sunday service, Reverend Paris calls his parishioners to begin a three-day fast to eradicate the disease. The three days of food deprivation pass without any improvement or comfort. 
the year 1691 also marked one of the most dreadful winters, with temperatures approaching a dangerous negative 30 degrees. In the houses, the wood for the fireplaces starts to be seriously lacking. Many died of cold during this period. After the winter episode, it was a turn of the fields to be invaded by ergot in spring, forcing farmers to burn more than half of their crops. The specter of famine began to loom. Naturally, all the villagers turned to Reverend Paris for spiritual comfort. As a solution, he suggests that his parishioners sing psalms and fast. Could there be a sinner among them? Look within, and you will find the sin you have not repented for. Samuel Paris commanded him during the church service. The life of the Puritans is thus made up of eternal introspection. With no possibility of externalizing one's feelings, of relieving one's conscience, and of renting. Many suffer from this, but speaking of it would be reprehensible as if they were sinning. Many also keep repressed passions and shameful impulses inside their souls. Sex is one of the greatest taboos of Puritanism, and its function is limited to ensuring a man's offspring. Otherwise, it would be considered lust and debauchery. To conceal, to constantly camouflage one's feelings, but at what cost and to what extent? For the Puritans, misfortunes never happen without reason. If the divine wrath has become so merciless in recent times, it is imperative to try to quench it by redoubling one's efforts and doing penance. It is clear that in this austere world governed by religion, 24 hours a day, the slightest change in the weather, the slightest daily worry, is met with divine punishment. Otherwise, there may be an explanation. The one feared by all, Satan. And how Satan gets into such pure homes where only the Bible is tolerated as reading material? The answer may lie within the Paris household, where Abigail, Betty, and Tatuba have been for some time been engaging in strange rituals. As they approach adolescence, and despite living in a protective cocoon from their temptation, the two cousins are already beginning to think about the other sex. The Marquis visited me last night, Abigail said mischievously in Betty's ear. Which Marquis of Marquises in Salem there are? Idiot, I'm talking about my Marquis. You know the red liquid at the bottom of my petticoats? Oh, shut up! Mother might hear us. Abigail's first manifestation of femininity makes her very proud. She knows that she is undergoing a major physical transformation since Mrs. Paris decided to have an extra strip of cloth sewn into her bodice to conceal her breasts. Now she has become an object of lust, an object of shame that can give any man bad thoughts. When Elizabeth Paris learns that the teenager has had her first period, she orders her never to talk about it in front of her uncle and to hide the strips of cloth in the back of her wardrobe so none of the boys in the household know what they are for. Only the slave Tituba seems willing to unravel the mystery of the physiological phenomenon with her. Through her, Abigail discovers many female secrets that she would have never dared to discuss with her aunt. At this time in New England, many girls of marriageable age began to make what was called Venus glass, a sort of vial or container filled with water into which they put an egg white on the surface. The glass is then kept for a few days, and as the egg white begins to deteriorate, shapes appear in the water, shapes that each girl interprets according to her fantasy, and always in relation to her future love and marriage. At the Paris household, too, the girls have been making the Venus glass under Tituba's guidance and in absolute secrecy. Every night before going to bed, Abigail and Betty take a long look at the liquid to see what the man they are going to marry will look like. 
they are fully aware that what they are doing is like magic and that if anyone finds out, they could be in big trouble. Tituba only discovered religion and its prohibitions late in life with her white masters, but she is not so bothered about it. She willingly agrees to share some aspects of her married life with Native American John, which the two cousins listen to, torn between shame, shock, and curiosity. In the spring of 1692, it was late at night when Paris' household was shaken by a most unusual commotion. In the room, Betty and Abigail share below the attic. A loud crash soon wakes the reverend, his wife, and other children. But what was going on here? Lying on the floor, Abigail Williams, disheveled with her hair in a mess, screaming terribly. Her uncle and his wife try to calm her down without success. God is angry, and Satan is coming to exterminate us. Suddenly, it is Betty's turn to scream hysterically and frighteningly. There on the wall, look there. Scared Samuel and Elizabeth Paris follow their daughter's directions without seeing anything. But Elizabeth, there is absolutely nothing on the walls. Reverend Paris then grabs his Bible and begins to read frantically. But this did not affect the girls. On the contrary, their screaming increase. It is from this fateful date that things have never remained the same again. In the following days, the pastor is relieved to see that his daughter and niece no longer have seizures at night. He is unaware. However, that during the day, instead of going about their business, they hang out for hours in the woods nearby and speak in an unknown language. A new jargon apparently understood only by them and the slave Tituba. Then, on a full moon night, the seizure returns more terribly than the first time. Worried and desperate, Reverend Paris and his wife immediately sent for the village doctor to examine the girls and diagnose any pathology. The doctor examines them from every angle, but is unable to understand what they are really suffering from. The occult aspects so feared by this population then starts to obsess them. If Betty and Abigail are not sick as the practitioner says, only a demonic entity can make them act like this. What abominable being has conspired to introduce the evil one into such pure souls? Samuel and Elizabeth Paris, in great distress, urged their daughters and niece to name names to accuse someone. Without hesitation, Abigail gives three. Uncle, I accuse our nigger Tituba, our neighbor Sarah Osborne, and Sarah Good, the vagabond of trading with the forces of evil and is responsible for our downfall. In Salem, the teenager's revelation caused instant alarm. So that's why God has been raging against their land for over a year now, destroying wheat and corn crops, inflicting deadly winters, and inciting the Redskins to slaughter innocent pilgrim families in the woods. The popular fury is first directed against the tuba. Many villagers tell of having seen her dancing naked in the forest on the night of the full moon. For the only answer, the slave girl lowered her head. As the only woman of color in this English community, the racist nature of the accusations can be explained. She is interrogated at length by her landlord who hits her several times to make her confess to her crime. Tatuba finally confesses to having helped make a Venus glass to amuse the girls, but nothing more. She is unaware that this revelation is enough to have her accused of witchcraft. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. 
Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. On 1st March, 1692, Tatuba, Neighbor Sarah Osborne and beggar Sarah Good were accused of witchcraft and satanic rituals. They were interrogated in front of the whole village before being thrown into prison. But it didn't stop there. Things were just beginning. Soon Abigail and Betty gave other names, accused other people, always women. That one looked at me the wrong way, and my bucket water spilled on the floor. That one struck me with a pin while shaking my hand. The list of defendants grew longer all from the immediate vicinity of the Parises. Sarah Buckley, Sarah Cloyce, Mary Eastie, Elizabeth Proctor, Martha Corey, Bridget Bishop, Martha Emerson to name but a few. These went on so well that in June 1692, there were well over 60 of them crammed into the jails of Salem. In the village, it is a boiling point. The Puritan community has forgotten all restraint, all forms of Christian pity, and now swears by the Inquisition, the stake, and the gallows. In an attempt to calm the heated spirits, Reverend Paris organized daily collective prayer meetings and ordered a week-long fast to eradicate the evil. A feeble attempt. Soon, other Salem girls like Sarah Bieber, Mercy Lewis, and Putnam, and Mary Walcott say they suffer from the same symptoms as Betty and Abigail. Collective psychosis or real pathology? We don't know it yet. In February 1692, after the women, the arrest warrants for the men accused of witchcraft by teenage girls began. John Proctor, John Alden, George Burroughs, Philip English, John Flood, Edward Bishop, William Hobbs, and George Jacob joined the local jails. The growing number of prisoners was beginning to present a new problem. Without the presence of a government capable of bringing them to trial, it is impossible to convict them. But what can be done? Meanwhile, in the village, neither the episodic fasts nor the prayer circles have the desired effect on the course of events. Salem swings crescendo into a kind of collective hysteria. A macabre and a crucial game like a sword of Democles that could strike everyone at any moment. Old grudges between neighbors, old stories that were thought to be buried and forgotten, old quarrels became a sufficient reason to accuse each other. A healthy vegetable garden where vegetables are now rotting. A cow that suddenly gets sick and no longer gives milk. A horse that refuses to take two steps. And immediately the accusations rain down on so and so. Terrified by the turn of events, many villagers chose to pack up and leave their belongings behind for fear of being sent to prison. It is so dramatic that outside of Salem, it is now rumored that an inquisition is taking place in one of the hitherto untroubled New England villages, which has now become a breeding ground for black magic. The rumor reaches the ears of the royal governor, Sir William Phipps, who decides to send two emissaries to check out what is really happening in Salem. The report they gave him was a village on the verge of apocalypse. 
half the inhabitants are in prison, and the rest are in hysterics. For William Phipps, it's time to act. The royal governor ordered the creation of a special court of five magistrates to try the accused in question. On arrival at the scene, the jury charged with owner's task of conducting the trials took up residence in the Paris house. It was composed of Lieutenant Governor William Stoughton, Associate Justices John Hathorne, Samuel Sewell, Nathaniel Sultan Stoll, and Clerk Stephen Sewell. For these magistrates, who were used to judging civil cases, the witch case was the first of its kind, and their nervous was all the more palpable. A Dutch minister by the name of Bertrand van Roenbeek was sent from Boston to join the jury. At the end of May 1692, the first hearing began in a heated and terrifying atmosphere. The parish church, which had been transformed into a coachroom in the meantime, was to house all the inhabitants of Salem Village and other visitors who had come from all over New England to attend the witch trials. Sitting side by side on the plaintiff's bench, Abigail Williams and Elizabeth Paris, their heads covered with their white kerchiefs, are almost intimidated by the crowd of people clumped together on the benches, standing or hanging on the railings. On the orders of the lieutenant governor, they brought a Bible on which they swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. As the first victims of the demonic manifestations, they are the first to be heard, and their testimony is of great importance. Complainant stands up. Wringing her hands nervously, Abigail begins to recount the events that unfolded that early spring night. In the room, a dead silence reigns. Facing her, the pale faces of the magistrates in grey wigs stare at her without batting an eyelid. Then it was little Elizabeth Paris' turn to go before the judges. Head down, she repeats her cousin's words word by word. Sitting in the men's row, Samuel Paris holds his breath, looking for his daughter and trying to send her signs of encouragement. Fearing to bring up the story of the Venus glass, which could make them condemnable in the Puritan court, Abigail and Betty denounced the slave to Tuba whom they accuse in unison of having incited them to original sin by introducing them to this kind of practice. They tell how Tatuba summoned the evil spirits to her aid one night, how she once again slit the throat of a black cock and drank its fresh blood. Disgusted O's come from the floor. Lieutenant Governor William Stoutle takes his gavel and bangs it against the table wall to restore silence. Reverend Paris swallows hard. He can hardly believe that such things have been happening in his own home without his knowledge. Huddled in a box, the emaciated and terrorized defendants are unable to utter a word in their defense. They do not even have a lawyer to speak for them since everything is based on face-to-face contact with the other party. However, the jury decided to pardon those who were pregnant and those who might denounce others present in the assembly, the perfect opportunity to escape the gallows. As a member of the Boston clergy, Bertrand Van Ruyenbeek is in charge of taking confessions off the record, and in doing so, he induces many innocent women to confess to things they never did. His coerced confession soon led to another woman being put on trial. Apart from spontaneous confessions, there are also the marks of witchcraft, commonly known as the witch's tit. Jumping up from her seat, Bathsheba Pope, one of the complainants, walked over to the table where the magistrates were sitting unbuttoned her blouse at shoulder level and showed them a sort of purplish scar. This is what John Proctor did to me one night when he landed in my bed from who knows where. I remind you that I am a virgin and that Proctor's wife was asleep in his house that night when he inflicted that bite on my shoulder and in other parts I dare not show you. She cries out. A reproving murmur goes up from the assembly. 
others imitate him, forgetting all modesty and all diktat, showing off a bitten breast or a scratched upper thigh or a back lacerated with traces of blows that are still bright and red. The search for this satanic signature gives rise to scenes that are, to say the least, embarrassing to us. The naked body of the accused is examined by the magistrates in front of the village community gathered in the church. Van Ruembeek recounts in his memoirs. Other evidence that the person is indeed under possession is the inability to sing religious hymns or recite a prayer. As for a recitation, the lieutenant governor orders everyone to stand up and recite the prayer. But they are noster. According to him, those who are under the influence of evil will be unable to do so. Abigail Williams comes forward and stammers. Our Father who art in heaven, uh, uh, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come on earth, uh, give me, uh, oh no, give us our nightly bread, uh, no, uh, no, no, not today, and, and uh, Lieutenant Governor, b- believe me, I, I can't do it. But see for yourself, no one can pray if he is possessed by the devil, exclaimed Samuel Paris coming out of his natural reserve and sweeping the whole assembly with an inquisitive look. Silence in the courtroom, complainant Williams continue. Swallowing her sobs, Abigail continued, Forgive us our trespasses as we, as we forgive those who trespass against us and us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's enough. Please return to your seat, said the lieutenant governor. Of the accused, only the slave Tituba admits to practicing black magic. But the others do not give up. They are innocent, and they will prove it. Those little bitches of Paris's daughters and the others made it all up. Throughout the summer of 1692, the hearings continued each time, resulting in a new conviction. Between June and September 1692, according to the testimonies of various complainants, 20 people were convicted, and 19 were sent to the gallows to be hanged. This was given a name, the Witch's Hill. Those whose pregnancy was diagnosed during their imprisonment was acquitted, as was the case of Sarah Good and Elizabeth Proctor, the wife of John, who accused of witchcraft and immoral acts with animals, zoophilia. The beggar Sarah Good gives birth to a premature child in her cell when Pastor Van Rumbeek visits her to take her late confession. She tells him this terrible sentence. You are a liar. I'm no more a witch than you are a sorcerer. If you kill me, God will give you blood to drink. The accusations made by the daughters of the Paris family do not, however, weaken, and some even begin to suspect that they are acting in a spirit of revenge. Indeed, the two cousins would have accused the nurse couple living in Salem Village of indulging in acts of witchcraft. It turned out that this family had once taken a piece of land from Reverend Paris and taken it for themselves. His daughter and niece would probably have sought to avenge him by doing so. After six months of relentless witch hunting, the village of Salem is on the brink of collapse. Twenty-five other people were executed, and a third is languishing behind bars. Many families are tearing each other apart. It's who will denounce the other. Suspicion is becoming the watchword. Because of all the upheaval caused by these events, all work and tasks were postponed, and the results were catastrophic. The fields were not plowed. The animals left to their own devices perished one after another in the stables. Salem Village is in economic and spiritual decline. From then on, nothing ever remained the same again. By the end of 1692, criticism began to rise in all the ranks of society. 
and concern began to be expressed about the way these serial trials were going. It had gone too far, far too far. And if the executioners continued to knock heads at this rate, there would be no living soul left in Salem. One of the first openly criticized the setting up of these trials was a Boston merchant, Thomas Brattle. For him, this case has gone on long enough and done enough damage. A man of science and mathematician before becoming a merchant, Brattle denounced the collective hysteria that had seized the inhabitants of Salem to a point of making them forget common sense. He refutes the evidence used in the trials, which was based essentially on the oral testimony of the supposedly possessed. On 14 January 1693, the royal governor, Sir William Phipps, ordered the dissolution of the special court where all the trials were held and also forbade any further witch trials in the Massachusetts colony. He decided to exonerate and free the last convicts and rehabilitate the victims. The slave Tituba is one of the last to be amnestied. Unable to return to her husband John or to resume service with the Parises, she returned to Barbados, where she led a life of debauchery and remarried twice. Accused of organizing a revolt against the island's government with one of her lovers, she was finally sentenced to be hanged. Her date of death is not known. It is said that, since her death, she has joined the world of the Invisible Ones and undertakes to help all the other slaves against the cruelty of their masters. Abigail Williams left Salem at the end of the witch trial, probably to get away from it all. Her uncle Samuel Paris would not hear from her again. Since then, her whereabouts have been lost, and it is not known where she lived afterward or whether she had a family. However, a book published in 1697 reveals that she died of smallpox at the age of 17 in Boston while working as a servant in the home of a prominent family. Her cousin Elizabeth, who was nine years old at the time, lived a much longer life. She died at the age of 77 in the city of Sudbury. She was previously married to a merchant and had two children and five grandchildren. The Salem witch trials remain to this day one of the worst episodes in American Puritan history the one that also precipitated their downfall and gave them a label of an austere, hysterical, and vindictive religious community. This is how they were later portrayed in numerous literary and cinematic work and pop culture. In total, the case resulted in the death of about 40 men and women, all of whom were accused without evidence, based solely on the oral testimonies of the allegedly possessed. The town of Salem, since renamed Danvers, continues to be a source of mystery. Many tourists make a pilgrimage to the town, especially during the Halloween celebrations on 31st October each year. The town of Salem has also taken advantage of its reputation as a former richest town to focus its tourist activities in this direction. Several souvenir shops sell brooms, crystal balls, magic lotions, stuffed black cats, and sulfur soap following an old tatuba recipe. The history of the Salem trials has inspired several films and television series. I could mention in a particular The Crucible released in 1996, where the actress Winona Ryder plays Abigail Williams and the actor Daniel Day-Lewis plays John Proctor. In this fictionalized, yet true-to-life story, Abigail Williams takes revenge on her lover John Proctor after he refused to marry her. In reality, Abigail Williams was only 11 years old at the time of the trials, and John Proctor was already 40 and a grandfather. More recently, in 2015, the film The Witch, A New England Tale showed a more realistic side to the life of the early Puritan communities in New England and their perpetual struggle against the forces of evil. The film tells the story of a family exiled by their community 
and who gradually fell into collective psychosis and absolute horror. The costumes, the dialogue, the oppressive atmosphere, the music, the dark colors, and the omnipresence of religion offered the viewer a very gripping and frightening portrait of the life of this village in this tormented period of the United States. We're at the end of our show for today, so feel free to listen to the other shows on the podcast and take 5 seconds to leave us a 5-star rating on iTunes. It's really important to us. You can also subscribe to the next episodes and follow us on Facebook to suggest new ones. Thank you and see you soon. are on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns